Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Luxon, and I'm here today with Dr. Zachary Lechner to discuss his book, The South of the Mind. Dr. Lechner looks at how Southern whiteness was imagined, portrayed, and discussed between 1960 and 1980 in the United States. He argues that certain narratives about Southern whiteness became increasingly attractive around the country, partly as a way to move past the racial traumas of the 1960s, but also to try to restore white American masculinity at a time when it seemed uniquely threatened. Uh, Dr. Lechner, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, uh, I'm an assistant professor of history at Thomas Nelson Community College in Hampton, Virginia, and I've taught in a few different places. Uh, Prior to that, I taught full-time at a uh, kind of magnet high school, um, elite high school in uh, Durham, North Carolina, and then I did the adjunct route for uh, for several years while I was uh, working on my on my PhD. But uh, I, I did receive my PhD from Temple University mm. in Philadelphia. Um, I took my MA at Purdue University in West Lafayette, uh, Indiana. And if we want to go all the way back to uh, undergraduate, uh, I took an undergraduate degree at uh, Truman State University in uh, Northeast uh, Missouri. And what led you to this project, which is South of the Mind? I was uh, someone who was always fascinated by the American Civil War, you know, so I was probably part of that generation of, uh, you know, young people you know, raised on Ken Burns, you know, <laughs> uh, watched the Civil War with great interest and watched it many times afterwards. And, you know, as I got into academia, as I got into grad school, I, I, I actually I kind of thought, uh, even at that time, you know, the, the Civil War, wow, that's a, that's a topic that a lot of people write on, and uh, that's a really really crowded field. Um, so of course I moved into post-World War II 20th century history and, you know, and then totally got rid of that, you know, that, uh, that problem, of course, but, uh, but no, <laughs> in reality, um, I, I was, I realized I didn't really necessarily want to study the civil war, but I was very interested in the South. Mm-hmm. And then as I got into some class, taking classes at Purdue university, particularly with, uh, with Nancy Gaben, who later, later became my advisor. Um, I just I realized that oh you you can write about popular culture you can you can do that I didn't really realize that was a that was a thing until I until I got into graduate school and so I guess this project kind of came out of a desire to combine both of those interests like a hist- an interest in the history of the South and in an interest in popular culture um, film you know music television uh, books um, etc so it's really just kind of a Frankensteining 
together of, of, of interests that that's led me to this, uh, to this project. And what was the research process like for this? I mean, I'm assuming it wasn't just sitting around watching Andy Griffith and listening to the Allman brothers. Well, there was that, there was that, um, you know, and it's always nice, uh, you know, to, uh, if there's any, you know, graduates, you know, well, I know there's many graduate students listening, but it's always nice, you know, if you can use research money to buy CDs, you know, because that's, that's obviously something that uh, <laughs> will be helpful for the project. And then, uh, you know, you don't have to give those back at the, at the end. So Temple didn't ask for all my Leonard Skinner records. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was some of that. I mean, it was, it was, you know, watching Andy Griffith, um, the Beverly Hillbillies, um, you know, the, watching films and, you know, taking you know, notes on films. Uh, but the, you know, it was also just a lot of just kind of traditional type research, you know, so looking at a lot of popular magazines, you know, going through, you know, the starting, you know, like with the New York times and, you know, what, what are they, what are they saying about the South, you know? And that, that was kind of a difficult thing because, um, first of all, South as a search term is a little bit problematic. Um, Southernness as a search term is kind of non-existent. Um, and so sometimes I felt like when I was doing the research that, um, you know, I was, uh, trying to find a South that was both kind of everywhere and nowhere at, at the same time. Um, so I was looking at, you know, traditional sources, popular culture sources, traditional printed sources, um, popular culture sources. And then also I did some, some archival research as well. So I, I spent some time both at the Jimmy Carter library in Atlanta and at the Gerald Ford uh, library in Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, where I, I, I did research for the, my chapter on the, the 1976 campaign and particularly the role of Carter's Southerness in that, in that campaign, how he, how he tried to use it as a, you know, as a strategy to, to help him appeal to, to voters and uh, that, that was definitely a challenge, uh, you know, trying to figure out to what extent, say, just in that instance, you know, Southerness did affect the, the campaign because I think, you know, there was a lot of uh, anti-Southern bias against Carter, but it was often under the surface, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it was difficult to try to tease out from the, from the historical record sometimes. So you just kind of had to, you know, look at a lot of, cast your net broadly and look at a lot of different stuff and, you know, end up wasting your time on, on, you know, in a lot of material that you ended up not using. Um, but you know, that, that happens with every project. So, um, it, uh, it, it, uh, it was just, I think it was just a unique challenge though, of trying to, um, trying to identify something, you know, Southernness that is kind of somewhat, um, I don't know, some nebulous, I guess. Like it's kind of hard to kind of put your put your finger on sometimes. Um, so uh, yeah, I just had to work through that, and it's probably why it took me a long time to <laughs> to finally complete complete the project because um, it just it was a it was a long a long search. So for somebody unfamiliar with this particular subject, how would you describe um, what your argument is in South of the Mind? Well, I argue that the that the South, in particular the the White South, um, not not always, but very often in a kind of rural incarnation, served as a unlikely savior, really, um, in the minds of, of 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 a number of Americans, not just Southerners, but non-Southerners as as well, and a savior from really the just generally speaking. 
the anxieties and the difficulties of 1960s and 1970s America. And so these difficulties, these problems were just, were it's just, all, there was a whole host of them. And, um, you know, as many of your listeners will, will know this already, you know, so, you know, discord uh, relating to race, uh, discord relating to the Vietnam War, you know, concerns about um, consumer culture, you know, kind of sapping the sapping the brains of, of America's uh, youth, um, the malaise of suburbanization, um, conformity, right? In general, the problems can be classified um, under a term that the pop sociologist Vance Packard used in a 1972 book called The Nation of Strangers, in which he of, you know, positive that Americans were kind of losing connection with each other. And that word is rootlessness. So in a sense, there's this fear of the overriding fear of rootlessness in 1960s, 1970s uh, America, that the white South, which is generally presented as, or often presented as a, as a bulwark of traditionalism um, and stability and, you know, familialism, uh, to use the word that's uh, 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 invoked by the creator of the, the, the rural uh, Southern TV sitcom, The Waltons, um, that, you know, that the White South is, is this kind of this savior. Um, uh, it's going to it's kind of, you know, bring the, the nation out of its funk. Now, obviously, I don't know if, me, I don't know if on a conscious again. level, people, you know, necessarily are, are thinking like, OK, well, if I just, you know, listen to enough. Allman Brothers records, you know, and if I just vote for Jimmy Carter, that, you know, that the Southerness will wash over me and everything will be fine in the nation. I mean, that's not, I think, a thought that people that people have. But underneath the embrace of all of these kind of aspects of white Southerness and kind of positive imaginings of white Southerness, there is definitely that inclination, the sense that, that the white South has somehow preserved something that other Americans have 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 abandoned. And mm-hmm. so if we kind of concentrate, if we kind of focus on what the white South is doing, whether it be uh, issues related to even race, which might be kind of surprising to us, um, or issues related to, um, you know, how people connect with one another uh, in terms of the, like their family relations or, or their uh, connection to the land that, you know, that, that there seems to be kind of a, a potential for the white South providing a, a, an avenue out of, these myriad of difficulties that Americans are trying to sort out in the sixties and the seventies. Are there actual solutions for these problems or really clearly discernible solutions that, 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 that can be arrived at? Mm, Maybe not. And so the South of the mind though functions as a kind of a, a fantasy of, of Americans seeing themselves out of these otherwise kind of insoluble problems. So your first chapter, um, you, you get to look at some interesting materials, but you're also laying the groundwork of um, frameworks of understanding the South, sort of different Southern narratives that emerge in the early 1960s. What are you looking at here? Well, I've, there's, there's three main narratives that, that, that as you uh, as you reference there. One is the the vicious South. One is the changing South, and three is the down home South. So these are these are not necessarily terms that are that are being used at the time. These are these are terms of my my own creation, um, you know, with the hopes that that someday people who are smarter than me will will use them, you know, and, and act like they're actual real things, you know. But you know you know how that goes. But but they are they are real in the sense that they they capture, um, you know, something very true about the 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 varied um, and often very diametrically opposed um, views of the, of the South. And I'm 
focusing here really on, in the first chapter, on the 1960s civil rights movement, okay, civil rights movement era. Okay, so it's not just a, a chapter about the movement, but about kind of the era in which civil rights is um, kind of at its, at its peak, um, particularly the black civil rights movement is really what I'm focused on in the South. So the, the vicious South, this is in some ways kind of the most uh, familiar of the um, narratives about the South. So this is, a, this is a concept that says the South, and in generally meaning the white South, is a uniquely uh, bigoted, you know, racist uh, place, um, just unapologetically so. It is everything that the rest of America is not, okay? It is the worst of America. So the vicious South functions really as, as the American other, you know, they're kind of the ugly, redheaded stepchild of American society. You know, so it's like we're every everything that's wrong with America, you know, has its own special place to go to, and that place is the South. Okay, and it's embodied in the behavior of white Southerners. And how do we know that? Well, just look at the evidence. You know, look at those look at those uh, snarling people outside of uh, Southern schools as as dignified uh, African American children are are trying to just get past them and, and, and become educated in, a, in, a, in an integrated setting. And so you see this, this version of the South, the vicious South, you see it in newspapers, you see it in television news reports, um, you see it in uh, publications like uh, John Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie. Okay, part of Travels with Charlie, this is, by the way, is a nonfiction um, travel log that's published by, by Steinbeck in 1962, in which he describes his, his journey um, in search of America, as, the, as, as it says in the tagline of the book, and at the end of his journey, he ventures through through the South. And you know, if he was if he was looking for America or what he hoped America would be, he definitely did not find it in in the South because he 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 arrived in New Orleans right at the time of this um, desegregation drama, in which you had a group of uh, kind of this infamous group of white women known as the cheerleaders standing outside of, of this New Orleans school and yelling and, and, and terrifying um, exactly. little, little black kids as they're, as they're trying to, um, as they're trying to enter the school. Oh, did we drop out again? Yeah, actually you keep going and recording. I, I'm getting called away by an emergency real fast. So oh, okay. Okay. You just keep talking. You finish out chapter one. I'm going to chop the part where I interrupt you okay. and, there might be a little bit of silence. Sit tight. I should be back quick. Okay. Okay. No problem. Okay. Thank you. Now, another place, another place that the vicious South narrative is, is present and even more famously and even more widely read is in travels with Charlie, uh, rather than, than in travels with Charlie is with, um, and in Harper Lee's to kill a mockingbird. So this is a book that, um, actually, um, Zeb, okay. Cut, cut this part out. Cause I, I messed. I messed up. Yeah, yeah. And the uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is not part of the, uh, the vicious South. So that's that's the, that's an encapsulation of the vicious South. Now, another aspect or another narrative that's being told about the South or the White South during the Civil Rights Era is that of the changing South. Okay, this is a hopeful narrative. Okay, so this says, all right, the South it has racial troubles. It has race, racial problems, and it's, you know, uh, the fault of, of white Southerners, okay? And, of course, there is a lot of truth to to these narratives. And I don't mean to say, oh, well, you know, the vicious South was portraying 
a white Southerner just really unfairly. I mean, you know, just as a bunch of racists. So it's like, well, there were a lot of racists in the South and they, you know, did a lot of terrible things. And so there obviously is, is truth to, to all of these, these, these images. It's just the way that they're deployed and the way that the, uh, uh, yeah, the, 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 the way that they're utilized that, that, that makes them meaningful. So in the change with the changing South, there's also some truth to it. There's this idea that the South is in transition. So the South has racial problems. Yeah. Bigoted white Southerners are, um, you know, in need of change. But there are glimmers of hope that they may be already changing. That the South may be already on its way to rehabilitating itself uh, in terms of its race relations. Okay, so this this changing South is really primarily a story of a white awakening. And that, that awakening or that changing South is most visible uh, in Harper Lee's book, To Kill a Mockingbird. It comes out in 1960, right, when the, you know, kind of around the time when the, you know, the, the lunch counter sit-ins and Greensboro are happening and, and you know, the 60 civil rights movement just, you know, kicks off in, in, the, in the high gear. And Atticus Finch is the main character in that book, and he is, you know, famous uh, in the you know, in his in his town, in his little Alabama town, and he will become famous in popular culture for, in the book, defending this wrongfully accused uh, black man, Tom Robinson, um, defending him from a rape charge, from raping a um, a white uh, girl uh, by the name of Mayla Yule, and Atticus is unable to 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 get Tom off of the charge. Okay. So Tom is sent to prison. Tom is uh, shot while he uh, runs uh, for defense in a possible, you know, kind of suicide. Um, it's not exactly clear what, what happened, but the Atticus Finch character is the reformed Southern or at the very least a reforming Southern. This is a guy who at worst is a moderate on, on racial matters. Um, in the book, he's, as, as Joe Crispino has argued in, in, in his recent book about Atticus Finch, in the book, he's more of a moderate. In the film, he's more of a liberal. Uh, you know, so there, I don't want to, you know, kind of um, get too bogged down in the, in the details. But, but in, in, in a sense, he's a good Southerner. Okay, he's a good white Southerner. Um, he is, if there's just, and if there's enough folks like him who follow his example, the South can find its way out of its racial dilemma. And the kind of the most extreme version of the changing South narrative is advanced by people like, you know, Walker Percy, the not famed novelist uh, from the South who, you know, makes the case um, that, you know, it's possible that the, the South even will have uh, lessons for the nation to, to teach or will have lessons for the, for the nation um, to, um, uh, to, to learn um, regarding the issue of race, which is kind of a remarkable statement for a white Southerner to, to be making in 1965, <laughs> you know, um, so that's, that's the changing South, the, the South on the mend. And then you have, finally, the third uh, version of the white South, and that's the down-home South. This is the South of the Beverly Hillbillies and the South of, uh, of the Andy Griffith Show, the town of Mayberry. Okay, so this is a, a South that plays out a lot on television sitcoms. And so in the book, I describe, in particular, those two programs, which, you know, spend a good amount of time, you know, with some kind of good-natured ribbing at the expense of, of their, of their characters. But it is a show that time and time again makes the argument that the rural or small town values of the, the white Southerners on these shows is superior to the kind of modernistic, technocratic, acquisitive spirit of, um, of, 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 of 
of, mo- of otherwise, you know, everyday uh, Americans. Okay, so kind of a classic uh, treatment of this on the Andy Griffith Show um, comes in an episode, 1963 episode called Man in a Hurry. And in Man in a Hurry, you have a gentleman from Charlotte. Okay, so he's he's a southerner, but he, you know he's from the big city. You know, so essentially he's been northernized because he's he's he lives in this this big urban center, and he comes to Mayberry and his car breaks down and he's just trying to get out of there, you know, and get his you know, and get his car fixed as, as quickly as possible. And he gets so frustrated because of the you know the Mayburyans, you know, they 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 live this very slow pace of life and you know they're just dragging the process out and he just cannot wait to get out of there and he's getting so frustrated. And, you know, he, he learns, you know, over the course of the episode to slow down and kind of relax and enjoy, you know, enjoy the rhythms of, of small town Southern life and to really kind of recognize in some ways the superiority of that way of life. And so he, he falls asleep at the end of the episode having, you know, just spent, um, you know, time, uh, you know, just whittling and, and peeling an apple, you know. So he's, he's gotten in touch with the kind of the, the small town Southern spirit. And so the down home South is, is, you know, is, is an intensely positive version of, of, of Southerness um, and a white Southerness. And it's, you know, very much opposed to, to the vicious South narrative. So it's saying that it's not even saying that Southerners need to change. It's saying that white Southerners are good as they are. And in fact, in many ways, their values are superior to those of, of non-Southerners and those who are, you know, so focused on kind of the, the everyday um, needs of the workaday modern world. Hmm. Now, in your second chapter, we get to move into some interesting material. And this was one I enjoyed a lot because I like country rock a fair bit. But this is how counterculture in the rest of America is now is now looking at the South. And it, um, superficially, it's this sort of improbable meeting, though, you know, you complicate that somewhat. What's going on there? It, it is kind of, it is in some ways an, an improbable meeting. And so I, I'm, I'm interested in the countercultural perception, the hippie perception of, of white Southerness. And so I'm using music as a, as a way to try to get at that. Now there's a, there's a lot of refract kind of um, refractions, I guess it would be the right word going on here. So it's not as if hippies are, you know, um, encountering white Southerners directly so much rather they're, they're, they're encountering it through their music, but it's not, you know, the music that's traditionally associated with the white South being country music. Exactly. Although there are a lot of, you know, hippies who are, you know, really into uh, Johnny Cash and really into, you know, even, even Merle Haggard, um, despite, you know, Oki from Muskogee or sometimes maybe in, because of it, um, if they think that they think that, uh, you know, Haggard's kind of in on the joke or something, but which I think he probably was um, mm-hmm. to a large extent. But be, be that as it may, they're, they're actually encountering it largely through kind of a hippie version of, of country music, which is, which is country rock. Okay, so country rock is, is difficult to, to define. You know, it has all kinds of different, different meanings as I, as I lay out in, in, in the chapter. But basically, it's, it's long-haired musicians mostly from a rock and roll background playing country music. And so in the 1960s, you get a whole bunch of groups who, who are doing this. You know, you have the folk rock uh, group, very popular folk rock group, the birds, you know, they start to play country music, or in fact, they, they just, they kind of devote whole albums to country music. They had dabbled in country music 
for for a number of years, actually. Uh, Bob Dylan famously will go to Nashville in 1966 and, and record tracks for, for Blonde on Blonde, which is not a country uh, or a country rock album. But the album that he records in 1969 called Nashville Skyline very much is um, a, you know, a, a low-key, very twangy uh, country album. You know, very low stakes. You know, he's not singing about, you know, themes of war and, um, you know, he's not, he's not, you know, doing blowing on blowing in the wind or masters of war on that. I mean, he's, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's singing, uh, you know, very low key tracks. Like I threw it all away, you know, great, good music, but, um, just, you know, not the, not the kind of stakes that, that he was, um, creating, I think in some of his earlier folk and folk rock recordings. I mean, in some ways, you know, the countercultural interest in country music is not, as surprising as it may seem at first glance, because after all, these were people who, um, you know, had been and probably still were to some extent into folk music. Um, you know, they liked blues, maybe they like blues rock more, but they liked blues music. And so it just kind of made sense that they would kind of complete the, the musical triumvirate of, of Southern roots music and just add flat out country music in, into that, into that equation. And it's a very specific version of, of country music. It's not the Nashville sound, which is a highly orchestrated, uh, very poppy uh, version of country music. That's, that's created in the, in the, in the 1960s by people like uh, Chet Atkins in, in Nashville as a way to uh, appeal to a larger swath of Americans than, you know, the kind of the, um, what the uh, scholar Richard Pearson would describe as like hardcore country music. You know, that's like Merle Haggard, that's Hank Williams, you know, that's, um, uh, you know, Johnny Cash, you know, guys who aren't putting strings on their albums, not making them syrupy, you know, they're, they're tough, you know, it's tough music, you know, even, even uh, like, like you know, Loretta Lynn, I mean, she would fall largely into that kind of hardcore uh, mm-hmm. category. So it's not all just men, but um, so they, so they, they, they're drawing on that music. They're also drawing on a version of Southern country music that's happening in Bakersfield, California, that's being performed by people like Merle Haggard and, and Buck Owens. Okay. So they're very inspired by that. So that's a further kind of, you know, kind of distancing from the kind of the, the, the Southern source of the, of the music. And then, and these, these country rockers are, are experimenting with the, with the music. You know, if they're like Graham Parsons, they're adding, you know, kind of soul music in, into the mix. Um, and, you know, at first I thought counterculturalists would just be very um, strict in what they would accept, you know, as authentic country music. You know, I thought they would they would make the argument, oh, well, if it, it has to it has to sound, you know, exactly like something that Hank Williams would have done in order for us to like it. And what I found is that their interests were a little bit more, you know, uh, lowercase Catholic in, in that sense, and that they were actually uh, wanting musicians to kind of put their own stamp on, on the music. Okay. So not just to kind of do a carbon copy version. Um, in fact, there was one criticism of, of the 1968 album, uh, the birds album, sweetheart of the rodeo. Um, and one countercultural reviewer uh, criticized it for its academicness. You know, it was like, it was like a, it was like a school project rather than, you know, like an authentic, you know, kind of lived in, lived in experience. But regardless of how, you know, hippies or their desires for how the music should should sound, they really did look upon this music as a kind of a window into into white Southern culture. You know, the counterculturalists were, you know, deeply concerned about the state of modern America. You know, they were, um, you know, not anti-technology 
per se, but they were concerned that technology had gotten in the way uh, of the ability of people to just relate to one another, you know, to get to know each other, to connect with each other on a, on a human level. And, um, you know, they also embraced music um, as a way to kind of just kind of get beyond the the what they consider the over-reliance on rationality, mm. you know. So people like Jerry Rubin or um, Abby Hoffman would say, you know, it's a kind of rational thinking, that kind of technocratic thinking that got us into the Vietnam War, right? So that's, you know, is that what we want more of? You know, not necessarily. So um, so music becomes kind of a way to, to get away from that. But um, the this this version it's really just a version though of the south it's an imagining of the south that, that hippies are are looking to through the music so i don't know that they really have any uh, i mean there are some hippies that talk about who do want to try to form connections with the perceived enemy you know of white southerners in particular um or working class whites more broadly who might who are increasingly part of the, the country music audience by the end of the 1960s but I think a lot of them are, are kind of like Robbie Robertson. Robbie Robertson uh, you know, uh, was the principal songwriter of the band, a um, group of mostly Canadians and one Arkansan, who um, you know, came out with, a, with an album called The Band in 1969 that was not entirely, but, but worked somewhat as a concept album about the South. And it presented the South in you know, very positive terms. Um, presented a lost cause narrative even on the night they drove old, old Dixie down. And I mean, Robertson was fascinated by white Southerners. He, he considered them, you know, very strong, very persevering individuals, you know? Um, and he created a, a music that, um, you know, that, that, that showcased them in, in very positive terms, even when they were um, enduring considerable struggles, which he did write about their, their struggles as well. But, this was somebody, Robbie Robertson, who said, you know, I like to think essentially about um, when I'm writing this kind of music about white Southerners, I like to think about a lone, you know, shack, you know, kind of out in the distance, out in a field somewhere, you know. And, it's, and he says something like, you know, I didn't I don't necessarily want to go up to the shack and knock on the door, you know, but I just want to kind of imagine it. You know, so it's like he has this investment in, in an idea of the South. And then, you know, there's not necessarily a, a great inclination to really discover the reality of it. And I think that's a theme of a lot of people, a lot of Americans who are imagining the white South in the 60s and, and 70s and, you know, in, in other times as, as, as well. Um, they don't really want to get to know the, the South. They want to they want to use the South for whatever um I mean, in some ways, selfish purpose, they, they, they desire it for. So hippies, uh, the investment in the South and their version of the white South may seem odd at first, but the values that they ascribe to the, to the white South, you know, uh, traditionalism, okay, kind of an anti-modernity, you know, kind of a close, close familial spirit, um, you know, their embrace of, of that version of the South makes sense because it, it, it provides them with further tools um, in their fight against, you know, mainstream modern American society. And and to what extent are some of those, especially sort of anti-urban country living nostalgia themes, sort of an ongoing phenomenon in American life? You know, I, I was reading this and I was struck by the similarities when it's a, a lot of the themes are, are ones that, that get brought up in Jimmy Rogers music in the late 20s and early uh-huh. 30s, you know, the sinful nature of country living and wanting to go back to the farm and go back and see mother. You know, there's so many Southern songs, but all going back to see, you know, your elderly mother. Yeah. Are there Price. continuities there? 
I th- yeah, there's de- there definitely are. There definitely are. And, um, and it, you know, I make the case in the introduction too, you know, these are, yeah, these are uh, in many ways continuations on, on some of these earlier matchings. So yeah, Jimmy Rogers is a great example. I also talk about, you know, the Nashville agrarians who in the 1930s write this book called, you know, I'll take my stand. And it's a, it's a stand against what they consider industrialism, you know, kind of modernity. And so they, they, they see the South as, as beginning to undergo a transformation to become more modernized, economically speaking, and in some ways socially, and they reject it. And they say, you know, the core of the South, and again, they're like kind of people, you know, I guess really prior to the 1970s when they say the South, they refer to Southerners, they're talking about the white South. And they say, you know, the kind of the core of the South is an agrarian lifestyle. It's where all of the, all of the best of the South uh, emerges from. It's the, it's the source of Southern virtue. Okay. And so to destroy that is to destroy the, the true essence of everything that is good about, about the South. So that's obviously, you know, playing out in the, in the 19, uh, uh, 60s and 70s as well. I mean, to, to an, not to oversimplify it, but, but almost any positive imagining throughout American history of the South and white Southerners in particular, in some ways is, is deployed in service of a critique of, of some aspect of, of modernism or, or, or modernity, you know, so that's a kind of, that's kind of a through line. I think what's going on that's different in the 1960s and why I think it's an interesting moment to kind of check in on these imaginings of the South is, you know, just the, the fact that the racial order, not just in the South, but in the nation is just, it's just so much in flux. And, you know, I think because there is a somewhat of a viable argument to be made that the South is undergoing racial reform, you know, one of the, one of the, the major drawbacks to, if you were somewhat of a, you know, fair, somewhat racially liberal perspective or racially moderate perspective of the nation, one of the, the, the real um, sticking points that would have prevented you from just kind of wholeheartedly embracing aspects of Southern culture is just the racist, you know, the, the racist aspects of that culture. Well, now when it seemed that, you know, maybe the South was on the mend, or uh, when Americans became kind of confronted, Americans outside of the South became increasingly confronted with their own racial problems. You know, once Watts happens in, in 65, the Watts riots, once a series of race riots break out in the late 1960s, I mean, clearly, as scholars have recently shown, I mean, there were, you know, myriad racial problems. And there were movements for civil rights throughout the North, you know, um, well before this era. But the way it's reported at the time, it's as if ooh, Northerners, white Northerners are all of a sudden, you know, discovering they got these, these racial problems. I think that kind of takes a lot of the heat off of the, off of the South, off of the white South. And it opens it up to um, make it more of a candidate for a, um, you know, a more wholehearted embrace. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a big difference. Also, another thing that's interesting about the South during this period is that it is becoming increasingly integrated into the nation, both economically and politically. But at the same time, as the South is perceived to becoming more like the rest of America, um, it's still seen as, as somehow culturally distinct. So even though you have that kind of that almost constant drumbeat of a concern about, oh, is the South, is it, is it losing its distinctiveness? You know, um, it, there's a, at least in an imagined sense, uh, you know, Americans still, you know, are, you know, considering the, the South just as, um, 
just a just a just a strong as strong of a cultural construct as 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 ever. Even though kind of all you know some of the other key trends politically and economically would suggest that the South is losing its distinctiveness as a as a as a cultural thing, though as something that's um, you know somehow culturally uh, separate from the rest of the nation. It very much seems to be, you know, kind of hanging on to that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's why the 60s and the 70s is important to talk about that um, this uh, these these imaginings, even if they do have, um, you know, some similarities between earlier ones and and later ones, because it is such a uh, such a moment of transition, not only in America at large, but within within the South itself. Now, your third chapter, and we've talked a lot about race up until now, but your third chapter takes it in sort of a different direction, and this is much more aimed at masculinity. And it too, it picks one real-life figure and one, and one semi-fictional. You look at George Wallace and then the movie Walking Tall. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. So I look at... Um... Yes, I look at this this uh, version of the South that I call the, the masculine South. So, so it's it's kind of a... You know, it's in some ways it functions as kind of a, a separate, uh, you know, narrative of, of, about the South. In some ways, it's kind of a subset, uh, at least as, as George Wallace uses it. It's kind of a subset of the vicious South. So, you know, I've talked mainly about how the vicious South is, is you know, a version of of the region which you know Americans, largely from outside of the region, you know, look negatively upon. The South is just kind of you know this racist wasteland that just a bunch of violent people and we want to have you know, nothing to do with them. Okay, well Wallace kind of turns that on its head. You know, Wallace running as a as a segregationist in nineteen sixty eight for pres- for the presidency. Yeah, I mean he's he's obviously not shying away from from his own racism or from the racism of the region in which he in which he he hails from, um, but. He says, you know, that's a positive thing, you know, so he will look at, you know, the race riots that are happening in American society in the late 1960s. And, you know, he'll say to a packed audience at Madison Square Garden during the 68 campaign, you know, uh, you know basically, you know, we, we know how to we know how to handle race relations in, in the South. So if there's a if, if somebody gets out of hand, if somebody tries to riot. You know, and when he says somebody or he says they, you know, he's, he's talking about African-Americans. It's clear to his audience. It's clear to everybody, even though he doesn't use use the term. Uh, but he says when somebody gets out of hand, you know, what, what do you know, and they, they pick up a brick, you know, what do you do? Well, and I'm paraphrasing somewhat, but he says, you know, you put a bullet in their brain and then you ask the next one, uh, all right, go ahead, pick up a brick, you know. So there is this kind of viciousness, you know, to this this uh, image of the South as, as the masculine South. I start out this chapter to kind of give you a little bit more background. I start out this, this chapter with a, a discussion of um, Lester Bangs. Okay. And Lester Bangs was a, is a, you know, kind of famed, you know, journalist, the, um, you know, uh, admired by hipsters around the world, you know, as like one of the great, you know, kind of rock journalists of, of the 19, uh, of the 1970s. And, um, and Lester Bangs was uh, sitting in a bar in Macon, Georgia in, um, I guess kind of mid in the mid 1970s. And he overheard a bar of one of the bar patrons, um, say this phrase, it's one of these Southern patrons. And, um, he said this phrase, you know, seemed to encapsulate, according to Bangs, you know, kind of the attitude of the South. And the phrase was, when in doubt, kick ass. Okay. And so I use this, use this, this phrase, when in doubt, kick ass, to, uh, you know, as, uh, to discuss the masculine South. Because essentially that's what, 
that's what Wallace is all about. He's a, he's about a politics of um, uh, racial backlash that is about literally kicking the ass of asses of um, not just, and it's not just about race. It's, it's, it's not just about, you know, beating down uh, black protesters or, or, or uh, African-Americans engaged in, in urban uprisings. It's about, you know, beating, beating back, you know, the demands of feminists in the late sixties, early seventies about, you know, beating back the demands of anti-war protesters. Okay. And so Wallace is somebody who describes himself as a professional Southerner, you know, and I've never, (laughs) I never quite fully grasped like what he means by that. But what it, what it means to me is that he is just somebody who, you know, he is inseparable. His southernness is inseparable from, from him, you know, so that any kind of solutions that Wallace proposes, they all kind of stem from his own experience as a southerner. OK, so he constantly talks about, you know, how to how do you, you know, keep, you know, America, you know, in, in, in protesters, you know, in check. You know, how do we prevent America from getting out of control or it's already out of control, he would say. How do we get it back under control? And, you know, he's, he proposes largely that we use violence and he, and, he, and he constantly invokes, you know, how we do things down south. You know, um, yeah, we beat up protesters. We shoot them, you know, if, if necessary. That's how we do things in the south. You know, he says, if we really want to solve the problems in this country, you know, all, all we got to do is just, you know, kind of, uh, you know, set loose a bunch of uh, Birmingham steel workers with about a, a 10th grade education on the problem, you know, um, you know, they won't, they won't be so genteel, he says, you know, when, when dealing with racial disturbances. Right. So, yeah. So the, the violence that Wallace proposes as the solution for the unrest in the late sixties, early seventies, America, it's, it's, it's a kind of a Southern, what he would identify as kind of a Southern style approach. Now, along with that, you have, um, a film that comes out in 1973 called walking tall and it's it's a you know it's a low budget film. It is uh, it does very well on the drive in circuit, okay. Um, but it's seen it makes it's a very profitable movie. And so the, the the popular culture that I that I choose for this that I've chosen for the for the book, I mean it's it's not obscure stuff. You know it's it's things that that a, that a lot of Americans would have seen that was you know widely reviewed um, and and understood to be somehow important to the culture at the time. Now, on the face of it, Walking Tall, which is a fictionalized account of, or I guess, you know, kind of, I guess the way to put it, it's a based upon a true story account of this guy named Buford Pusser, who was a, a sheriff in the county of uh, McNary in Tennessee in the 1960s. And Buford Pusser was a former wrestler known as Buford the Bull. And he comes back home in the, at the start of the film. And he goes back to work on his uh, father's farm. So here he is, you know, kind of, you know, participating in the virtues of, of rural, uh, rural Southern living, okay, near a small town, okay. But this is not Mayberry that he lives next to, right? So this is a, this is a town that is ruled by vice lords, okay. So um, early in the film, he and a buddy go to this, uh, this place called... Uh, uh, the lucky spot, which it will prove to be not so lucky for for Buford, um, as he's uh, as he's, as he's beaten up there and he's left for dead on the side of the road, 
um, when he uh, when he when he goes in the back room and, and engages in a, in, a, in a game of uh, a game of chance, an illegal game of chance. So uh, so Pusser eventually is beaten up. He runs for sheriff and he sets upon to root out vice. Okay. To get rid of you know the prostitution, the you know illegal gambling, um, you know everything that is that has come to this town. All right, so you know Buford Pusser, the character is in many ways kind of Wallace-like. You know, he criticizes judges, you know, who who seem too caught up on the intricacies of 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 the law. You know, who who seemingly want to are more interested in protecting. Uh, protecting the, the rights of um, of criminals than they are in protecting you know the lives of the innocent who might be hurt by these criminals, and so you know he's he's very outspoken. He does things that you wouldn't you know expect law enforcement to do or, or think that they maybe should do. You know, for example, there's a there's a cop that that's been you know, I guess you know kind of uh, in some ways kind of collaborating or you know. Um, letting the uh, the vice lords kind of have their way um well buford Pusser, you know uh threatens to dynamite that cop okay rather than <laughs> if he doesn't give him some vital information so he seems very wallace-like in the sense that you know he's willing to do whatever it takes whether or not civil liberties are being violated in order to accomplish it but what's very different from wallace is that Pusser, he's a tough guy okay he's all about kicking ass but he has he's he's uh he's a relatively speaking he's racially egalitarian okay so he has a black deputy who he treats with dignity okay but still he kind of there's a there's an element of racial paternalism within that relationship okay but you wouldn't call him a racist in the way that you would that you would george that you would george wallace okay um so yeah so that's kind of that masculine south toughness the south as a um uh, the white South in particular as this, um, this idea or this kind of, um, place in the mind in which Americans can go if they're feeling like, Oh, you know, society, it's kind of being, it's being sapped of its, of its vigor. It's being sapped of its manliness. You know, there's all these publications in the 1970s that, that suggest that, you know, American masculinity is waning. Okay. It's the, it's the era of the, of the, um, of the kind of the androgynous, you know, singer songwriter Jackson Brown and you know Neil Young, and so the South says, "No, no, we're, we're gonna we're gonna pump we're gonna pump virility, we're gonna pump masculinity back into the American spirit." And so the South seems to be a place, at least in you know, the rhetoric and the campaigns of Wallace and in films like like Walking Tall that that suggests that um, yeah, masculinity is is there for the taking, is there for the tapping. Now, in your fourth chapter. You actually sort of you you go back to music, but this time you're looking at southern rock. Now, how how do you construct that as distinct right. from country rock, and and how are people using southern rock to imagine the South? Yeah, southern rock is 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 different. I would define it as um, as uh, music that is played first of all by southerners. So southern rockers are actually people from from the south and that's not to say that there weren't some country rockers like like a graham parsons you know who who had their origins in 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 the south but um but some one's own southern identity um is really is really central to to southern rock music okay so you self-identify as somebody who is from who is from the south and in some ways i think those musicians feel that they are representing 
the South through through that music. So I think the kind of the, the stakes of identity are higher in, in Southern rock music. Also, the sound of the music is is different. Although, you know, bands like Leonard Skinner and, you know, and the Allman Brothers, who I focus on in that chapter, do, do definitely draw on country music to varying degrees. The, the basis of the, of the Southern rock sound is really um, rhythm and blues music, um, but even more so, I would say the influence is uh, British blues rock, you know. So the Allman Brothers band really is for much of its early re- recording career, I mean, basically a, a blues band, you know, they're, they're performing, mud, they're performing covers of, of Muddy Waters and, and Elmore James and, and, and doing their own, their own original um, kind of takes on kind of the black um, uh, post-war uh, Southern blues sound. Um, Leonard Skinner, you know, their biggest musical influence, and this is not, going to be like a, a, a big a big one for most of us but is the band free like paul rogers uh, band before um he did bad company you know and that so that's like this kind of very you know kind of you know uh, loud and you know kind of you know bluesy uh, rock rock and roll band um so the, i think the influences are are a little bit different as well and so the, the sound is just it's, it's a little bit more aggressive it, it i mean it sounds more like rock and roll whereas country rock sounds more like country music. Um, you know, Greg Allman would say, and I don't really understand like Southern rock. I mean, I thought, you know, basically, you know, all it, it's like calling, it's like calling it rock, rock, you know, rock music is from the South. So it seems like a redundancy is, is what he is, what he was getting at. And in some ways, in some ways he was right. But, um, but this kind of combination of, of British blues, rhythm and blues, and a little dash of country music, that's, that's what makes the, the, the Southern rock, sound so you know if you want to i mean you know a good a good you know version of that is uh, Leonard skinner's give me three steps you know it's like well what kind of music are they drawing on well it's kind of bluesy and eh, it's kind of countryish. um you know there's some r&b in there too so it's just it's just kind of like a putting all that into a blender and mixing it up and what comes out is this, is this very distinctive very almost kind of paradoxically loose and tight at the at the same time mm. So those bands, you know, in particular, they're, you know, there's, there's many Southern rock bands, you know, in the constellation of Southern rock bands. But I think the two most important ones are clearly the Almond Brothers band and Leonard Skinner. They're also the two most commercially successful ones. Now the Almond Brothers band are presenting their Southernness. It's almost, it's it's what I would describe as a countercultural Southernness. So they are, you know, kind of, they kind of come off as hippies, you know, they're, they're long hairs. They, 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 early in their career, they live in a, in a communal environment. You know, it's like they live in a commune basically in, in, in Macon. Um, and, you know, they, they buy a farm later, later on, which they call the farm. Um, and, you know, they hang out there and they, they take kind of a lot of uh, spiritual sustenance, you know, from, from small town and, and rural settings as, as well. So this music that they that they that they play is is um, is and I say I would say that the the general kind of spirit that they convey is one of togetherness, you know, is, is this kind of countercultural spirit, and they're also very racially progressive. So they have a black man in in the band from the beginning, 
Okay. Um, they have a black drummer. Later, they will have a black bassist. So it's an integrated band, which is very unusual, you know, for a for a rock band. And you can say, okay, well, the Stax studio band, okay, Booker T and the MGs, that, that's an integrated band. But that's also that's a kind of a different kind of music, you know. So this is so so a rock and but a straight up kind of rock and roll band, you know, to to be uh, integrated at that time, and to and to importantly to come from the South, that's that's a very significant significant thing because this is this is still in the late 1960s when this when this is happening so i think the allman brothers they could present for a lot of listeners the, the the best of the south the best of the white south what it can be you know they're drawing on that kind of changing south attitude they're also drawing upon that down home south attitude that that places um, a lot of value in, in rural and small town southern life and then on the other side, you have um, you have Leonard Skinner, you know, which which seems to be a very different group, because Leonard Skinner, you know, really kind of takes that notion of white Southern pride and just you know kind of amps it up um, on steroids. Really, um, you know, they are proud Southerners. They are unapologetic Southerners. I mean, this is a band, after all, that would really throughout its throughout its career into the last year of its, of, of the, of the life of the initial band before a, a tragic plane crash would claim the lives of, of some of its members and the, and the band would, would then kind of fold temporarily. They would fly the, the Confederate flag, um, the stars and the stars and, uh, well, I guess not the, the brother, the Confederate battle flag is what they were flying. Um, and they would come out, uh, to, uh, on stage to an orchestrated version of Dixie. You know, they use the Confederate flag in their, um, in the, in the different, uh, you know, kind of, uh, merchandise that they, that they sold their, I think their, uh, their mascot was, uh, you know, like a, a skull smoking a cigar, wearing a Stetson <laughs> with a Confederate, uh, neckerchief, Confederate flag neckerchief, you know, so it kind of gives you an idea of what they were, of what they were going after. But so, yeah, so it's all about unapologetic masculinity. It's, it's, a, you know, I, People have very, you know, differing impressions over uh, what what Skinner was or what their lead singer Ronnie Van Zant, what his real politics were. There's some effort to try to kind of make uh, Ronnie Van Zant into some kind of, um, you know, kind of closeted liberal, you know. Um, but I, you know, I, I I think in many ways they were consciously or sometimes unconsciously, perhaps, you know, presenting kind of a neo Confederate. Um, you know, worldview, um, in part through their use of the flag, in part through their kind of sometimes mealy-mouthed embrace of, of George Wallace. You know, sometimes they said, oh, well, you know, I don't really like, I really don't like George Wallace because of what he says, quote, about yeah. colored people. That's what, what they said once. Um, but I like the fact that he has balls, you know, so that there you go. There's the masculine South again. So it's like they're kind of speaking out of both sides of their mouth about, about, about it. Now, they they did have, they weren't just like coming out and just unprompted un, uh, and saying, I love George Wallace, you know. Um, but he, George Wallace, uh, being the politician that he did, or, or I think somebody on his staff said, hey, there's this, there's this very popular rock band that has this song about Alabama. And he was talking about the Skinner's smash hit sweet home, Alabama. And Hey, wouldn't it be a good idea to kind of try to, you know, get on that train a little bit. And so Wallace in the mid seventies as governor of Alabama made the members of the band, uh, honorary Lieutenant colonels in that believe <laughs> the Alabama state militia. But this is an honor that they, that they accepted. And this is an honor that I spoke about 
with um, the guitarist Ed King, the Skinner guitarist Ed King, you know, uh, uh, many years, of course, after the honor was bestowed on him. And, you know, he said that was a, that was something that they were proud of and that he that he and the other members of the band liked Wallace because he was somebody who stood up for the average white guy in the South. And, that, you know, and, and it, the idea was that they felt that that was somebody who needed standing up for because they were in many ways kind of average white guys, you know, if you want to say that. They were working class white men. And I think that it, they felt kind of beleaguered and to some extent, understandably so, as a result of all this kind of vicious South uh, rhetoric during the during the 60s. But, you know, but they, they this this version of Southerness that they embrace, um, yeah, it does have some kind of uncomfortable parallels with um with um yeah kind of earlier uh you know white southerners saying like hey leave us alone like let us take care of matters on our on our own and um and that you know maybe that maybe seemed to apply to matters relating to race it it wasn't it wasn't quite clear um so you know so so in short the almonds the almond brothers band are kind of like the the peace and love you know southern rockers and um and skinner are kind of the you know kind of kick you in the teeth you know and stomp stomp on your neck uh, after you've fallen down kind of kind of southern rockers but they're all i i would argue kind of united um by this kind of i think general kind of discomfort with the state of american masculinity and the desire and the desire for um you know men to be allowed to be men um, so in, in many respects, um, even though they're very different in the way they express their Southerness, um, they're doing, they're, ex- they're expressing it in the midst of a concern about, um, the feminization of, 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 American society and, and culture. And I think they, they see themselves, you know, not necessarily consciously, but they, they, they see themselves as, as part of a res- res- or they position themselves as part of a, re- a resistance to that feminization. And then you end the book in your fifth chapter, looking at the election of Jimmy Carter in 1976, which, uh, the, I mean, this is presenting a whole new face on the South. How does Carter manage that? And you also spend some time on Ford. How does Ford try to approach that? I mean, it's tough. It's tough for Carter, and I think in in some ways the Carter campaign struggles with exactly how to how to position. Carter as a Southerner because they, they can't shy away from that. It's, 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 you know, it's not like, you know, even Bill Clinton in 1992 couldn't, couldn't escape, you know, the fact that he was you know in from Arkansas and certainly in 1976, you know, Jimmy Carter couldn't, couldn't do that. So I think he, you know, they're, they're very kind of, they're very savvy about it. And so they, they settle on kind of three aspects of, of, of the candidate Carter's southerness that they want to uh, promote. And in a in old but great, I still think, biography of, of Carter and his, um, his, his 76 campaign um, uh, called Jimmy Carter in Search of the Great White House, uh, Betty Glad, the, the late uh, political scientist, and I think former reporter, um, she argues that the, basically the Carter campaign that really broke down his southernness into kind of three categories. It was it was region, uh, it was uh, it was race, and it was religion. Okay, so the region thing is, you know, hey, Jimmy Carter comes from, you know, he's a son of the rural South, like legitimately, like he he grows up in southern Georgia. He grows up in a little settlement. Um, on the outskirts of, of Plains, Georgia, called Archery, and his father is, you know, I mean, he's not a, a Rockefeller, you know, but he's he's the family is much better off 
been uh, the black sharecroppers who who you know work work for um, for for Mr. Carter for Jimmy Carter's father, and so you know it, it's a, a kind of as, as Jimmy Carter presents it during the campaign, it's kind of a bucolic up, upbringing. You know, he says in his campaign biography, uh, "Why not the best?" Um, he says, uh, "You know, the, our life on the f- I'm paraphrasing some of it." He says, "You know, our life on the farm, you know, was much closer to." Uh, uh, during the thirties was much closer to the farm life of 2000 years ago than it, did, than it was to, or it is to the farm life of today, you know, meaning 1975 when the book comes out and it's kind of a remarkable statement, a little bit hyperbolic, but, but, but Carter is clearly trying to position himself as a, as a Southerner who was, you know, who knows the land, who grew up on the land, who, you know, is closely connected to his family and that that somehow, you know, makes him, um, you know, capable of uh, being uncorrupted by, you know, various aspects of modern urban American life. And he uses his family a lot on the campaign trail to try to, to try to help him out. You know, he, his mother, you know, Lillian is just like the kind of the stereotype of, like kind of the sassy, like Southern matriarch, you know, she's strong, she's assertive. It's also helpful that she has a long history of, um, you know, uh, racial egalitarianism. Um, and, uh, you know, he uses her to great effect on the campaign trail, even his brother, Billy, you know, who is kind of an embarrassment sometimes in, in that he drinks a lot and he tells a lot of off color jokes and, and not very often when there's reporters nearby uh, willing to report on it. Um, he is somebody who humanizes Jimmy, who um, kind of mitigates what the journalist Larry L. King would describe as, as, as uh, Jimmy's official pieties, you know, makes him seem a little bit more approachable and accessible. And so that's the region part of, of Carter. He's, an, he's, an authentic, he's authentic, right, because he comes from this authentic unaffected place, you know, the rural South, you know, the red, the red soil of, of, of Southern Georgia. So then you've got Carter, um, uh, utilizing his, uh, his religion. Okay. So this is, you know, it's not like, you know, uh, no candidate for high office had ever talked about religion before, but, um, the fact that the Carter is an evangelical Christian, that he's a Southern Baptist at a time when Americans are just kind of, I mean, certainly not evangelicals themselves, but a lot of non-evangelicals are kind of suddenly coming to the realization that, oh, there's like this group of people, like evangelical Christians, and like, what are they all about? And, um, you know, so it's a kind of a time of discovery of this of this uh, important subgroup in American religious life. And Carter is one of them. And Carter is somebody who um, the Ford campaign describes as wearing his religion on his sleeve. And, you know, Carter... Some say he exploits his religion, you know, for political effect, for political benefit. Um, others just, I think most voters, though, um, at least according to the polling, um, they, they see it as an authentic um, representation of his of his views. And it's obviously it's a religion. It's a Southern Baptist religion. It stems from from the South. He's a lifelong Christian. He had a very famously a born again kind of experience in the, in the mid sixties after he lost a, a, a very important um, gubernatorial election. And so it, 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 again, it helps to humanize Carter. It, he uses it um, to, as kind of the center of his campaign, which is in very, very many, in many ways based on kind of more morality, 
You know, he's the anti-Watergate candidate. You know, he says, I'll never lie to the American people. I'm going to restore dignity to the office of, of the presidency. Okay. So that, and, and there is a sense that, that Americans are picking up on this. So for those candidates, or for, excuse, me, excuse me, for those Americans who are concerned about the spiritual moral state of the nation, Time Magazine would, would find in a poll that, um, that most of them supported Carter. Okay. So clearly that, that message is being, is being received loud and clear. And then finally, just briefly, I mean, the, 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 the race angle, I mean, Carter is somebody who credibly can, you know, uh, be viewed at worst as a, as a, as a moderate on race during the 1960s. And by the early seventies, he's, he's clearly, he's clearly, um, a, a racial liberal. Okay. He says, very famously, after running kind of a race-baiting Wallace-esque campaign, um, he says in 1971, during his inaugural address uh, as, as governor of Georgia, you know, the time for racial discrimination is over. Okay. A lot of the voters, a lot of his supporters felt kind of betrayed, you know, because it's like, wow, that's not the candidate that I thought I was electing. But, uh, but you know, he comes into office, he puts, you know, he, puts up in the state house, I think, uh, you know, a, a portrait of Martin Luther King. He hires a lot of African-Americans to uh, state offices. And, you know, he, he, he comes off as a racial healer. And so it's kind of ironic that a white Southerner, you know, runs um, on, uh, you know, runs on a, on a platform of being a racial healer. But Carter is, a, again, kind of invoking this changing South idea, you know, or maybe the, it's the changed South by that point. You know, I'm somebody who has, who has, who has, who has lived through the very trying experiences of, of civil rights. You know, I've changed. We've all changed in the South, blacks and, and whites. You know, we've come, we've had a racial reckoning and we've come to something of a reconciliation. And I think that I have something that can be helpful to the rest of the nation. You know, newspapers report that, you know, perhaps, you know, Carter's thinking here along the lines of the, the current, you know, Boston busing crisis. You know, Southerners can, you know, maybe they have a thing to, a thing or two to teach, you know, white, white Northerners about how to, how to resolve these tough mm. racial situations. I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous argument, I mean, in, in reality. But, you know, but it, it, is, it is seen as credible by a lot of, a lot of commentators and I think by, by a lot of, of voters. So, so Carter is in, 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 in many ways it's like the pinnacle of these imaginings of, of the South. He's bringing it all together, right? He's bringing kind of the, the, the racial change component. He's, he's, he's coupling that with, uh, you know, the, the rural, small town, authentic aspect. And then, uh, and then he's adding something kind of fresh to the equation, which is, which is his, uh, his religiosity and just the depth of his religiosity. I mean, you asked, like, how does the Ford campaign respond to this? I think the Ford campaign is just really kind of at a loss, you know, I mean, to get, to get advice on how to deal with Jimmy Carter's Southerness, um, the kind of Ford's inner circle asks, uh, Betty Ford's speechwriter, who just happens to be from Tennessee. Okay. This, um, uh, this, uh, this woman who's, who's not part of the, of the Gerald Ford presidential campaign. And, they, and she actually, she comes up with actually a very, uh, very knowledgeable, uh, very insightful memo in which she tells the Ford campaign, uh, well, you know, listen, I mean, Jimmy Carter, part of what his power is based in is the, is the idea that, you know, he's, 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 he's fusing together kind of two seemingly, um, you know, um, 
paradoxical ideas, kind of the black and white together South, uh, as she terms it. And then the, you know, the good old boy rural South, you know, somehow he's able to combine these two things and it becomes a, a very, it's become a very powerful you know, combination, she, she argues. She thinks it's kind of BS, you know, but in, in reality, but she, she says that, you know, commentators in particular are just kind of reporting on it as if that's, you know, that's the truth of, that's the truth of the matter. So the Ford campaign is, is in a tricky spot because they're concerned that trying to peel off white Southern voters from Carter's camp will be in some ways construed as attacking Carter's Southerness. So the Ford campaign does something interesting, but in some ways kind of expected, which is to make the argument to to white Southern voters that Jimmy Carter is, yeah, he's Southern. Okay, we uh, we acknowledge that. We acknowledge that you may be inclined to vote for him because you are Southern as well. Okay, so they they acknowledge kind of a Southern chauvinism, even though they don't they don't use the use that term, of course. But they say, you know, but Jimmy Carter, you know, he's not really you know much of a Southerner when it comes to his values and it comes to his political positions. So in a in a in, a, in an ad campaign that that features the South Carolina senator and former Dixiecrat Strom Thurmond, Thurmond will say. Uh, you know, the only thing uh, Southern about uh, Jimmy Carter is his accent. You know, when it comes to the issues, um, you know, that's that's about it. You know, he's he he's a, he's a liberal. You know, he's a far left liberal. Right. Um, so the Ford campaign just tries to say, you know, vote, mm-hmm. vote not for the region, but vote for the policies. Right. And of course, it, they, they're constructing white southernness in terms of conservatism. You know, to be white and to be Southern is to be a political conservative. You know, so that they 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 struggle to kind of come up with a with a viable strategy, and I don't. They are not able to uh, fully overcome the appeal of Jimmy Carter to white Southerners um, that is based just in his region. You know, the fact that he is he is one of them. But I also argue that it's not. I don't think you can just say a kind of an empty headed Southern chauvinism is the only reason that white Southerners do vote in increasing numbers for, um, for, for Carter. Certainly, you know, in, in more white Southerners voted for Carter than, than had, um, you know, than had McGovern and allowed him to, you know, to, to win, you know, every Southern state except, uh, except uh, Georgia. Um, I think it also has to do with the fact that, that they like the way that he, that he presents the South. You know, he presents the South in a very positive way. You know, those kind of the three categories that place Southerners and white Southerners in, in, a, in a very positive light. Now, it is important to note that that a slight, you know, plurality of, of white Southerners do end up voting for for Ford. And so it's really the, the African-American vote in the South that enables Carter to, you know, to, to, to eke out a victory in, in a lot of in a lot of these states. But even even that is kind of a, in a, an amazing you know, story of, of, a, of a white Southerner convincing African-Americans that here's a guy that not only will I not be racist, but I will pursue policies that will be, you know, ben- beneficial to to you. And it's like a Harlem resident said during the campaign, you know, I, I respect a good Southern white man because he's not a hypocrite. You know, so it's like if I if it's so if 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 this guy, if the white Southerner is espousing kind of racial racially progressive policies, he's really got to mean it, you know, because to to come from that position or to arrive at that position in the 1960s and early 1970s South, like that guy probably took a lot of heat. And so there, there's a lot of respect 
um, for Carter by African-Americans, not just in the South, but throughout the nation that allow him to, uh, you know, to get, to get a lot of, uh, get a lot of support. And of course, just real quick, you know, uh, it's obviously not just white Southerners who, who, who like Carter's Southerness. A lot of people from outside the South will um, identify with Carter's so-called Southern values as just, just kind of what the doctor ordered um, in terms of, you know, dealing with the so-called moral or spiritual or uh, kind of um, political decline post Watergate of, of, of America. But maybe, maybe this guy, maybe he's a kind of a pure individual and, uh, and maybe that purity comes out of his rural, racially progressive, you know, religiously committed Southerness. So, yeah, so Carter brings it all together. And I just don't think the Ford campaign really had much of a chance to, to successfully undermine that without, uh, without shooting themselves in the foot. No, and they, and they, and they realize that themselves. One question I always like to ask at the end of these, what are you thinking of working on next? Well, it's good that we're, I mean, it's, you know, I guess noteworthy that we're ending on Carter because I'm, I'm considering a, a project thinking hard about another project that, that continues with Carter. So really looking at, at Jimmy Carter as a, as an icon his looking at his, his imagery during the 1970s in, in particular, um, and thinking about the way that Carter, you know, his image, his, his contradictions embody, you know, um, many of the uh, concerns of, of Americans during the 1970s. So in a sense, kind of using Carter as a window into uh, 1970s America and the transitions that are occurring in 1970s America. So, you know, um, thinking about, you know, the move to, uh, you know, kind of a, a colorblind um, kind of racial, you know, uh, politics, um, you know, thinking about um, uh, certainly, you know, the, the transformation of the, of the South uh, economically, politically, culturally uh, during, during this era, thinking about, you know, the turn toward um, more of a human rights focus, but at the same time, you know, kind of a re reamping up of the, of the cold war toward the end of, toward the end of, of Carter's term. Um, you know, so just, um, you know, seeing uh, Carter, looking at Carter um, as a way, as a, as a window into, um, you know, just the Americans kind of coming to terms with the transitions and the kind of fears of decline during the 1970s. So it's not a project that's going to argue that, oh, Carter was somehow a secret secret success as a, as a, as a president, although I think he did have some successes. It's not really, it's not really interested in that. It's, it's a, it's an similar to this project in the sense that it uses Southerness. It uses a Southern figure to try to um, kind of tell a larger story about, um, you know, what's going on in, in America uh, during, during the 1970s in particular, but also beyond, because I think in many, uh, in many respects, um, Carter is, um, you know, we don't typically think of the age of Carter, right? We think of, you know, the, uh, the age of Roosevelt, and we think of the age of Reagan, or maybe even if you're Gil Troy, thinking about the, the age of Clinton. But, I, you know, I, th- I think that much of Carter's rhetoric um, and his um, kind of the imagery associated with him, for example, you know, uh, you know, the idea of the, the kind of the, uh, the outsider, you know, kind of coming into into Washington and you know, kind of shaking things up. Um, not an, entirely a new idea, but uh, but the idea that somehow like political inexperience 
um, is at the national level is somehow a positive and not a negative. Uh, I think we can kind of see the kind of the in today's culture, we can see the kind of the continued relevance of a of a and 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 the danger of 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 a thought like that. Um, you know, so so looking at Carter as, as not just a, a window into the 1970s, but in some ways looking at Carter as a, as a as a window into some of the political and the cultural transitions that are beginning in the 1970s, but that continue uh, continue on uh, well into you know the period that we would typically associate with uh, with the age of Reagan. So the age of Carter, if if, if we want to term it that, is kind of an overlapping kind of an overlapping period. So yeah, just obviously in the kind of the early stages of of kind of thinking, thinking about that. Um, but I think that that's, I think that's the next Fabulous. kind of the next direction Thank you for taking that, the time I'm, to talk to us that I'm looking to pursue. Thank you, Zeb. I appreciate your time. Mm-hmm.